Trigger points, do they exist? Let's talk about it. massage therapist and sports injury therapist practicing 45 minutes outside of Toronto, Ontario, and Canada. And for episode 18 of the Concast, trigger points. Let's talk about the evidence as to whether they exist or they do not exist. Probably the hottest or one of the hottest topics in manual therapy these days. Maybe not necessarily these days. It's been one of the hottest topics for many, many years, ever since I've been in the industry. People are definitely divided, and these debates often get quite heated on whether trigger points exist or they don't exist. Before we talk about their existence or their non-existence, let's talk about where the concept of trigger points came from. First born in the early 80s from Janet Travell and David Simmons, who wrote kind of the textbook on trigger points known as Myofascial Pain and Dysfunction, a trigger point uh, therapy manual textbook. There are two volumes. Uh, I think each text is probably about 700 pages long. So there's a substantial amount of information in these texts. And they really came up with this concept of, and it wasn't just trigger points within their texts, but these concept of myofascial pain syndromes, building off of what the research showed at the time. And from there, kind of founded the term trigger point from which all the other research has been continued on from. So how did they first define a trigger point? They defined a myofascial trigger point as a hyperirritable spot, usually within a top band of tissue of skeletal muscle or that muscle's fascia, that is painful on compression and that can give rise to certain characteristics, in particular referred pain, tenderness, or autonomic phenomenon. Now they go on to say in that definition, these should be distinguished from cutaneous, ligamentous, periosteal, or non-muscular fascial trigger points. So that was Travell and Simmons' working definition of a trigger point back in the 80s, a hyper-irritable spot within a top band of tissue, within a muscle, or within fascial tissue. And that was really it. That was their definition by which all the other research has come from. Now, in terms of that definition, I can kind of get behind that definition that there are many hyper irritable spots within a muscle or within a muscle's fascia now the difficulty with the definition or where i see some difficulty is i'm unable through palpation to distinguish between a muscle's fascia and the muscle itself this idea that I would have the palpation skills to help discriminate against that, or furthermore, to discriminate that from a cutaneous ligamentous or a fascial trigger point outside of muscular fascia, to me, is where I struggle with the definition. But in and of itself, this hyper-irritable spot within a muscle or a muscle's fascia, I can get behind that definition. Now, within the text, there are many other subcategories of trigger points, including active and latent trigger points, satellite and secondary trigger points. And I don't think we necessarily need to talk about those, but they have gone on to discuss trigger points in certain subcategories at that time. Now within that text as well, Travell and Simmons talk about 
what is the diagnostic criteria for these so-called trigger points? And they divided it into eight diagnostic criteria, the first being a history of sudden onset or shortly following an acute overload stress or history of gradual onset with chronic overload of the affected muscle. So something in the health history that might lead you down a line that this muscle has been overloaded, essentially. Second are characteristic patterns of pain that are referred from myofascial trigger points. These patterns are coming from what they cited as specific muscles. Now, these are patterns that they had developed from their research at the time and had said that certain muscles have distinguished patterns about them. Weakness and restriction in stretch and or range of motion of that particularly affected muscle. A taut palpable band within the affected muscle. Exquisite focal tenderness to digital pressure, so pushing on that area of focal tenderness within that taut band of muscle or muscle tissue. A local twitch response, which is a local twitching of the tissue based on palpation. Reproduction of the patient's primary pain or complaint through the palpation of that tender spot and then the elimination of those symptoms by therapy directed specifically to that particularly affected muscle. So let's now go back through the diagnostic criteria and discuss a few things that has come to light with a little bit more research. So I think the first big assumption here is that we can separate muscles specifically within the body. So we can say that, you know, in isolating elbow flexion, in a forearm supinated position, we can only recruit the bicep muscle, for example. And what we understand now is that that's not really how the body works. So even through palpation, this idea that we can be really, really specific with our, our palpation is not exactly true. So often when we think we're on the bicep, we could be on the interface between the bicep and the brachialis, for example, or the bicep brachialis brachioradialis. There's also the thought that the bicep and the brachialis are independent of each other and that we haven't just dissected them out that way to be independent of each other throughout years and years of medicine. The other assumption that is often made with a twitch response is that that twitch response is being generated from that particular trigger point and a mechanical disruption within the tissue of that muscle. And this is something that's come from the research of Travell and Simmons. So from their initial text, there's been decades of research on trigger points. And one of the thought processes around trigger points is that the functional unit of a muscle cell, the sarcomere, which is formed by actin and myosin. So we've got muscles and muscles are made up of building blocks, which ultimately end in muscle fibers and a muscle fiber is made up of these little thin and thick filaments known as myofilaments. There are two types of myofilaments, actin, the thin filament, and myosin, the thick filament. And they form, they form these cross bridges that form what we know as the functional unit of a muscle known as a sarcomere, which is that contractile component of a muscle. So it helps produce power, it helps produce contraction. And one of the theories behind trigger points is that there are areas of the sarcomere that are shorter than the other. And if you look through the Travell and Simmons textbook, there isn't really any discussion around this. This is not something that they came up with. In fact, when you look in the index of volume one, the word sarcomere only really appears on one page, page 32. 
And from that point, it's not really discussed. So this theory that there is a shortening of sarcomeres, in fact, didn't come from Travell and Simmons. This has probably been an evolution of the message throughout the research that has been done since then. In fact, when you look at how Travell and Simmons communicated regarding trigger points, they took this definition of a hyperirritable spot within tissue, and then it was much more explained in terms of the neurology within that area as opposed to the mechanics of the muscle itself. For example, under possible explanations of trigger point phenomenon, the first line reads, many observations and reports support the proposal of Popliansky that the myofascial trigger point process begins as a neuromuscular dysfunction but can evolve into a histologically demonstrated dystrophic phase. So this idea that this hyper-irritable area is at a neuromuscular junction. Now, what is a neuromuscular junction? A neuromuscular junction is where the terminal aspect of a nerve meets the soft tissue. We know that there are many, many nerves throughout the body, big ones and small ones, and they are essentially branches of a tree. And the more terminal the branch, the smaller the nerve. And nerves have various responsibilities. Some carry sensation only. Many nerves are mixed. They carry motor function as well as sensation. And they also carry autonomic fibers to them. And when you think about this idea of a twitch response, you can't have a twitch response without neurological stimulus. So if you pushed on tissue without neurological stimulus, there would be no twitch response. If you think about a neuromuscular junction, this being the terminal area by which a nerve pierces through tissue, it's often very superficial as well. And you push on that, you may get that twitch response that you're looking for. And this may simply be because that area of the nerve might be irritated as it courses through the tissue, rather than this aspect of shortening of sarcomeres that we've seen through the dissemination of the research over many years. The other thing that Travell and Simmons talk a lot about in their text is this idea of peripheral nerve entrapments. So one of the things they say is when a nerve passes through a muscle between taut bands or when a nerve lies between taut bands and bone, the unrelenting pressure exerted on the nerve can produce a neuropraxia, which is a loss of nerve conduction, but only in the region of compression. They go on to say the patient with one of these entrapments is likely to have two kinds of symptoms, aching pain referred from trigger points in the involved muscle or the nerve compression effects of numbness and tingling. So the way that I understand that definition is if you're having these nerve entrapments, then potentially you're having more hyper irritable spots within the muscle that that nerve innervates, which would make perfectly normal sense to me. So the way that I've understood this so far is we have hyper irritable spots within the body or hyper irritable spots within muscular tissue, and they are perpetuated by irritation to the neuromuscular junction. And there may or may not be presence of peripheral nerve entrapments involved. I can get behind that definition. I can't get behind the idea that the muscle has shortened in different areas. And again, this is not taken from the original text. This would be taken from research that's been done on the premise of some of the definitions in the original text. And the other thing that I can't get behind is this idea that we could discriminate the different types of trigger points through palpation or adequately search for one through palpation. So now if we look at how Travell and Simmons originally discussed the treatment of trigger points, it was through the use really of digital pressure. There were a few different options in their textbook that they talked about how to relieve symptoms if you in fact were able to quote unquote diagnose a trigger point through these, di these eight diagnostic criteria that they came up with. 
The first was digital pressure, so pushing on the trigger point. And this has been, again, taught in so many variations from the original research, but typically by applying an ischemic compression to the area, so pushing on the area, allowing the patient's pain to reduce, then increasing the pressure to bring the pain back up. And this is done a number of times, typically cited as three times, followed by a stretch. There was the spray and stretch method or the spray and ice method. And then there was also the injection method. And this was done either with a needle, with an acupuncture needle, with a needle and some anesthesia in it. And so there are a variety of methods that are discussed within Travell and Simmons' text. Now, I think with the evolution of how we're seeing treatment and manual therapy in general, we understand that some of these ideas around the treatment of these hyper-irritable spots from a purely mechanical perspective might be better served elsewhere or through the use of other techniques. So if you look at some of the work of Michael Shacklock, for example, or Diane Jacobs, looking at how nerves move throughout the body and how they terminate at these neuromuscular junctions. What we're beginning to understand is that the mobility of the skin and the mobility of the underlying layers and how they interact with these tissues is of some importance. So creating mobility of the skin, creating mobility of the fascia, and this concept of interlayer gliding of the gli- and the gliding of tissues might in fact improve the sensation that a patient is experiencing in a particular limb. We also see that w- with the evolution of manual therapy this no harm or reduction in harm approach where if we don't have to be a- overly aggressive and create a painful experience for the patient, then we might be better off in not doing that. So if we look at the first technique of ischemic compressions and pushing on an area that's hyper-irritable, to a patient and creating more discomfort, then that may not be the best strategy. If we can create comfort for a patient, that might be a better opportunity to get long-term resolution of symptoms. Now, we can create comfort in patients through a variety of manual therapy techniques. Uh, This may be by using a modality like ice, which is often used as merely a distraction for the brain. It might be putting the limb in a more comfortable position, which may include hyper-shortening the limb or applying a quote-unquote stretch to the area and discussing with the patient what feels better for them. We might be better served using gentler techniques on these areas that are hyper-irritable, using a slower sustained technique that someone like Diane Jacobs might use, or using a skin rolling technique or trying to manipulate the skin to try and free up these neuromuscular junctions at their terminal branches might be of some benefit to the patient. The really interesting intervention for me is the use of a needle to get resolution of symptoms. And this one has always been a little bit perplexing as in terms of dry needling a trigger point or using injections in an area of hyper irritability and getting resolution of symptoms and why that may work. I think there are a few potential discussion points around this. The first might be patient expectation and the fact that because they're getting the intervention done, it is sought as beneficial for them and ultimately resolves their symptoms. There may be a local inflammatory response in that 
area of the neuromuscular junction in some of these cases, and especially if there's a medication that's being injected into the area, this might provide short-term or moderate relief for the patient. And I do wonder if the subcutaneous application of, of digital pressure, so just poking something underneath the skin, underneath the skin has some value in terms of the interface between the nerve and the muscle and whether or not that can improve some of this glide and ultimately improve the experience of the of the patient. These are just some things that I think about when I think about the application of of dry needling in particular and how dry needling has become so popular and there there are patients and athletes that swear by it. What might be some of the mechanisms by which this works? I think one of the things that is quite clear is going back to this mechanical model again of are the sarcomeres short there and you're actually making them longer? That probably isn't happening. That brings me to another point as well of palpation. If we look at the model of these areas of hyper irritability are actually something that's really, really short, they would be short at a electron microscopic level. We're talking nanometers in width or length. And this idea that we would be able to palpate with that much specificity, for me, I, I just can't really get behind. I know that I can't palpate with that much specificity. But one of the things that we might be able to sense to some degree is through communication with the patient, is that area irritable? And then what is the peripheral tissue's response as a nerve pierces through soft tissue? So as a nerve pierces through soft tissue, if that area of the body is irritated, that may lend itself to an increase in tone, which we might be able to feel a little bit more readily than a specific irritable spot that we're looking for to twitch. So now that I've given some background and some context on trigger points and clearly been avoiding the question now for the entire podcast, do I think trigger points exist? Do I think trigger points exist in the context of this idea that sarcomeres are shortened within a muscle and they create maybe accumulation of waste products and they create specific referral patterns in the body that we need to push on and and treat with ischemic compressions? Uh, No, I do not. Do I think that patients experience hyper-irritable areas within the body that they experience as referred pain that have twitch responses? Yes, I do. What do I believe to be the source of those? Well, that's where the conversation becomes exponentially more complicated. I think, for me, we should treat every patient as an individual. And I think that there are interactions between our peripheral nervous system and our central nervous system that create a pain syndrome, a painful experience for the patient. Do I believe that sometimes the peripheral nervous system and the nerves within the tissue aren't moving as well, and this might create an inflammatory response within a nerve that needs to be managed through manual therapy? Personally, I do. Do I believe the longer that this goes on, there might be these chronic changes that happen within a patient's behavior that can create central brain changes and complicate the scenario and situation even further? Yes, I do. Does that mean that I'm not going to do manual therapy on them? It probably doesn't for me. I'm still going to use some some aspect of manual therapy. Now, for me, the theoretical framework that I use is this concept of trying to create mobility. So these areas that are hyper-irritable to the patient, I'm not going to push on them and try and create a more uncomfortable experience for them. I might 
uh, do some skin rolling. I might do some local stretching to the tissue. I, in some patients, will put the joint or the tissue in a shortened position. And in some patients, I will use acupuncture in that area. And everybody's different. And often with one patient, I will use several interventions before I get the desired result. And why or how does this work? I don't know, and you don't know, and none of us really know. And let's be honest, I've said this before. All we're really doing is giving our best guess and trying to educate the patient and trying to keep them active throughout the injury process, which we know is the most beneficial thing. So just because I don't believe in a traditional definition of a trigger point, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to do manual therapy. It might change the way that I do manual therapy and a little bit more harm reduction, a little bit less aggressive. But many of the principles of the initial text of Travell and Simmons still stand and I think are reasonable in terms of the explanation of why people might have a painful experience. I think maybe what's happened here is over the years, the original text and a lot of the information that's really, really valuable in the original text has been pushed aside and we've taken some of these concepts of the original research and kept the pieces in that we think are important. And this has taken the original definition, the original framework, and a lot of the original workings and turned it into what it is today, 30 plus years later. So if you have access to volume one and volume two, it is a long read at roughly 1,200 pages, but I would I would read it. I think there's still very valuable information in there. And when you look at their thought process being 36 years ago or even longer when they were starting to develop their research, it really was great research for the time and great framework for musculoskeletal pain at the time. And that brings up my last point really which is research is always evolving and it's good that we continue to evolve these concepts and evolve these ideas and understand that there's probably a lot of great information from what Travell and Simmons said there are some things that need to be adapted and there are some things that need to be thrown out what I don't agree with is people sort of saying oh trigger points don't exist there's no research to support it maybe not in the the definition of which a trigger point has become throughout the research, but there's still a lot of valuable information that we can take as manual therapists from their original textbooks. And yes, maybe we do need to change the framework by which we communicate with patients and change the way that we apply some of our manual therapy techniques, but this is the evolution of what we do. And if you look at the field of manual therapy, we are very, very young in terms of the amount of research that's gone into our field. And really only within the last two decades have we begun to scratch the surface of what we think we might even be doing when we apply manual therapy technique to somebody. So I think throughout that podcast episode, I've done a pretty good job at being a professional fence sitter. Please let me know if you think uh, my fence sitting skills are adequate enough. As always, your comments are appreciated. Do you think trigger points exist? Do you not? How are you treating trigger points right now? Are you even treating them? What uh, elements or techniques are you using within your practice that you've found to be successful? And I hope you've enjoyed this episode and you found it valuable. Have a great Friday, folks, and we'll see you in the next one.